Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. God has done tremendous things here. And, and I was reflecting over, you know, some of the different cards that were written and uh, some of the things people said about, about this church and about how God, uh, how thankful they are for, for the Lord sending them to this church and joining them to this body. And a lot of just really neat things were said. And uh, the Lord's been stirring up uh, me in the last few days on the subject of vision. And I was thinking about, you know, what, what it is that, that makes our church uh, really unique in a lot of ways. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of things that, uh, uh, a lot of things that are not responsible for it. And, uh, I remember something that Roy Hicks said when I was in Bible school way back in 1980. Now, Roy Hicks was a, a tremendous Bible teacher, international Bible teacher, traveled around and spoke in conferences. And Brother Hagan, he was a friend of Brother Hagan's. Brother Hagan asked him to come and do a week-long seminar at the Rama campus and in the mornings or in the, in the morning for the student body and then at night open to the general public. Roy Hicks at that time was serving as the general overseer of the uh, Foursquare Gospel Church. Now, the Foursquare Gospel Church is not well known here on the, in the east, but it is very large out in the, out in the west part of the country. It was, it's the denomination that uh, Amy Simple McPherson uh, really was responsible for, for uh, her ministry. It, it, it grew out of her ministry in the 1920s and 30s and uh, just a powerful denomination, full gospel denomination. And uh, the, the term four, four square, just in case you wondered, is, is their doctrine is based on four things. Jesus the Savior, Jesus the, the baptizer and the Holy Ghost, Jesus the healer, and Jesus the soon coming king. That was the four cornerstones of their doctrine. And, um, but Roy Hicks was, was teaching and speaking to the, to the student body. And he made a statement that stuck with me. It just, you know, sometimes people say things and it just goes right to your heart and it just, you never forget it. Uh, and, and it's interesting because I've gone back and tried to find out, uh, you know, t- talk to some of my former classmates and friends of mine that are in the ministry today that were in school with me back then, 1979 and 1980. And, and I asked them if they remember Roy Hicks making the statement. None of them remember it. And, uh, and I find this interesting because he was talking about, he was talking to pastors. And a lot of those guys were planning on pastoring and I wasn't. They didn't get it and I did. <laughs> but he made this, uh, this statement. He said that, uh, he said, now you young, uh, people, he said, you pastors, uh, those of you that are going to go out in the ministry and start churches, he said, don't go out and start a church just like the church down the street or another church nearby. He said, if you don't have something different to offer your community than the other churches are offering. If you're going to go out and just preach the same thing they preach and, and have the same emphasis they have, in other words, your church is going to be a carbon copy of theirs. He said you'd be better served, the kingdom of God would be better served if you just go you know, connect with that church, hook up with them, so to speak, and, and help them do what they're doing because a lot of times you have a lot of small congregations. You have a lot of uh, duplication of, of effort and ministry to, to get the same little amount done and sometimes a larger church can accomplish more uh, things and have, and have a more varied uh, and, and more widely developed uh, 
uh, ministries. And so he said, you know, if you don't, if you don't have something uh, unique, then don't just go out and start a church like everybody else. And for some reason, that statement had just stuck with me. And even at the time, I had no intention of, of pastoring, but it just made a, an impression upon me. And what he was saying was he, he was not saying, go out and if you're going to pastor a church, if you're called to pastor, go out and just start a church and then invent a vision come up with something out of your own mind that you think would be good, you know, purpose for a church. And that's, that's not what he was saying. He was talking about the importance of having a heavenly vision and that all of the churches in a community are uh, supposed to complement one another, not compete with one another. Go with me over to our, our church vision scripture over in the 26th chapter of Acts. And uh, we usually read from verses 16, 17, and 18. But verse number 19, after uh, telling King Agrippa about his call and how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and how he saw the, the, the light from heaven and how Jesus spoke to him. Verse 19, he said, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The heavenly vision. Uh, one thing that... Uh, I'm certain has caused our church to uh, uh, be strong all of these years is we've had a genuine heavenly vision. You know, a lot of, a lot of churches today are, are on their websites or their media. They don't really talk about vision anymore. They talk more about their mission statement. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. That f- terminology is kind of uh, drawn from the corporate world. You know, they talk about their church's mission statement. That's, that's all well and good. We have, you know, uh, same thing we can do. But I like the word vision because it implies inspiration. It implies divine inspiration. It's not just something that people have thought up. And uh, what is a church vision then? Well, church vision is, first of all, a revelation from God. It's not, like I said, it's not something that I thought up. Uh, It wasn't something that I copied from somebody else or we looked around to find out what was working, other places and so forth. Uh, Jesus spoke very forcefully and very powerfully to my heart and, uh, and just burned the vision that he had for our church into me. So a church vision is first and foremost a revelation from God. It's the church's ultimate purpose for existing. Go with me. I don't. I don't know if have I ever taught you on the on the uh, candlesticks before. I don't. Huh? I don't think I ever have taught that here. Uh, go over to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter one, I hadn't really intended to get into this part tonight, but I just seems right to do it tonight. Revelation chapter one. You know that Paul or, or John, rather, the apostle John was. Uh, had been uh, uh, placed, uh, what do you call it? He was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Huh? Exiled, yes, thank you. Exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony. And, uh, you know, the, the government thought they could get rid of him. And while he was there, he just received the revelation. Praise God of all the end time things. You know, God has a way of really uh, setting everything right, doesn't he? And while he was there, Jesus appeared to him. And uh, he says that in verse 12, he turned to see the voice that spoke uh, with me. And having turned, he said, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the, to the feet, girded about, with a chest, about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, his, his, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. What an amazing spectacle that, should, that must have been, vision that must have been. Then he says, verse 16, that he had in his right hand, Jesus had in his right hand seven stars. And then out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. What splendor. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his hand on me, his right hand on me, and said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Then he said something really interesting. He said, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now the seven stars, he said, were the seven messengers. That word messenger is the word that is commonly uh, translated angel. It's the Greek word angelos. And it's all through the New Testament, it's translated angel, speaking of angels. But there are also times when this Greek word angelos is actually, refu- is actually used referring to men. You remember when uh, some disciples from John came to Jesus asking, you know, if he was the Messiah or not? The, those men were referred to as the messengers from John. Well, they weren't angels, they were, they were men. So the word, as even though it's most commonly used to talk about angels, the word simply means a messenger. Now there are, and he goes on here in the next two chapters and he has a, a word, Jesus has a, a message for seven different churches. And these were churches that existed in John's day in Asia Minor, uh, actual you know, local congregations. And uh, Jesus had a message to the, the apostle John and he said, send, write this message and send it, write these, these words and send those to the messengers of the churches. Now, a lot of people, the older King James translate that the angels of the churches. And a lot of people today still view that as though each church has an angel and that John was to write uh, to to each one of these angels and give this message. Uh, I do believe that, I I put it this way, I don't doubt, I don't really have any scripture for it, but I don't doubt that there are angels assigned to each local church. I don't doubt, I have no reason to doubt that there may be one uh, main angel that's assigned to each church, like our church, or there might be uh, more than one. I remember when Christopher, we were in this crusade uh, this a couple weeks ago in uh, Africa, when he was there back in uh, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, he prayed for a, a Hindu man and woman that was in his crusade and crusade and, and they were not able to have children and they came up for prayer so that they could have children. Now, they were both Hindus. They did not convert as a result of this. 
Uh, and Christopher, we were out walking one day this last time when we were here just a couple of weeks, we were there a couple of weeks ago, and we went by a shop, and it was a little clothing store, a small clothing shop, and he looked in, he said, I know that woman. He went in, and it was the lady that had come to he and his, she and her husband had come to him years before and had pray had wanted them to pray for her to have a child. Well, he went in, he introduced himself. She didn't remember him. And he said, oh, yeah, don't you remember you came to my crusade? And she didn't remember. He said, well, I, I, I remember you, and I know your husband. Tell your husband Christopher Allen's in town. He said, hello. Well, that evening, her husband got in touch with him. He was so excited that Christopher was there uh, because they, Christopher had prayed for them, and they now have a 10-year-old daughter. And so they came out one night and went to the, to the re- there was a little Indian restaurant across the street from the hotel where we were. So we went to, to eat one night and he came and his wife and his daughter, we got to meet the daughter, you know. But it was interesting, Christopher told me, he said back 10 or 12 years ago, whenever that was, he said they came to the crusade one night and came up afterwards and wanted prayer and the lady said, she said, she's Hindu, she said, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. But... She said, when you got up to talk, she didn't even call it preaching. She didn't even, she just talked. She said, when you got up to, to talk to everybody, she said, who was that man that walked up behind you? He was dressed in white, had a white glo- robe on, and he put his hand on your shoulder. And he stood there the whole time you talked and just walked around with you and had his hand on your shoulder. Who was that? Christopher said, I don't know. I didn't see him. And, uh, well, obviously it was an angel. It might have been the Lord, but it was more than likely an angel. But uh, I said all that to say that angels are real. So we believe in angels. But I don't believe that these uh, stars, which are the messengers of the churches, I don't believe those are angels. I think those are the pastors of the churches. Now, I believe that for this reason, because the pastor would be the person. You notice that in in each one of these... uh, uh, illustrations, each one of these churches, the Lord either rebuked the church or corrected the church, and he sent the message to the messenger of that church. Well, that to me would correspond to the pastor, because he's the one that's responsible for what goes on in the church, things that are taught, things that are not taught, so forth. And besides that, if if these were angels, why would Jesus, you know, in the Bible, angels are always messengers sent from God to man. Why would Jesus give a message to, an angel, to, to John to turn around and give to the angel? And, and then secondly, if, as, as absurd as that would be, if you think about it, that's pretty absurd. Why would he have to write it down? What would he write, what, what kind of, where do you mail that? He said, send, write it down. He told him to write it down and, 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 and send it to the, to the men. So if that was an angel, I mean, how do you send a letter to an angel? So I believe he's talking about the pastors of the churches, but that's not really what I'm going to talk about. I want to talk about the lampstands. He said the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars or the seven angels are messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw, which you saw are the seven churches. He said, these seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I think it's best because a church isn't a lampstand. Lampstand isn't a church. I think it's best to understand this as these seven lampstands represented those seven. They were, they were uh, I, I, th- these lampstands existed in heaven because 
he showed them to John. John saw the seven lampstands. And, and later, Jesus was walking in and out among these seven lampstands. So in the spirit realm, there are lampstands, evidently. Uh, but I think that what they represent is what is important. They represent those churches. Now, when I saw this a number of years ago, uh, at first I was kind of excited to think that, you know, that uh, my church is represented in heaven by a lampstand. I mean, they're, they're, and, and Jesus is walking in and out among the lampstands. That Jesus is among, in and out among his churches. But then when I read chapter two and chapter three, it started getting a little unsettled because he wasn't always happy with those churches. So what did he think about my church, you know? So I got over my euphoria real quick, you know, and I, I thought, hmm, this is something, something to think about. And then I noticed, uh, he said this in, in chapter two, he said, these, these things to the angel or to the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hands and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. It's exciting to me to know that Jesus holds these messengers in his right hand. Praise God. That's, I don't, that might not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. Amen. And then uh, he, he corrects the church at Ephesus. And in verse number five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, that's interesting. A church can, can lose its lampstand. You see that? Because Jesus, that wasn't a, just a vain threat. He said, you, you change and repent or I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. So that tells me that not only do, do, do churches have lampstands, but they can lose their lampstands. Now, no other place is this mentioned in the scriptures than right here. So we can only gather what we see here. Evidently, Jesus has the sole authority to remove a lampstand. Well, if Jesus has the sole authority to remove a lampstand, he must have the sole authority to grant a lampstand. Every church that is truly called and ordained of God. God is involved in the raising up of a church will have a lampstand in heaven. Now I gather all of that from this passage. I can't, I can't confirm that anywhere else, but based on this, because each one of these seven churches had a lampstand. Some were in danger of losing their lampstands. Well, if Jesus grants lampstands, does he just do that indiscriminately? In other words, let's say there's a good, healthy, grow, you know, vibrant, growing church. You know, it's not perfect, but it's just, you know, God's hands on it. I, I think we would all agree that if Jesus remu removed a church's lampstand, I think we'd all have to agree that the blessing of heaven would no longer be on that church. People could continue to meet as usual, conduct services, but like the Old Testament, you know, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Uh, that's, that's obvious, I think, to all of us, that if, if the Lord removed the lampstand, then the blessing of heaven wouldn't be on it. 
What about, let's say, a, a church that uh, is, you know, is a God-ordained, God church, not perfect, none of us are perfect, you know. The reason there are no perfect churches is because they're full of people that aren't perfect. They're headed by pastors that aren't perfect. But let's say, let's say a group of people get, uh, you know, all sideways in a church. You know, you know, church splits, you know what they are usually arise from? Not all the time, but usually. Usually a church has been together for a number of years uh, that, uh, that is what I call board run, you know, people run. The pastors come and go and, and the congregation stays and they, you know, one pastor is voted out, they bring another pastor in, he stays around, they vote him out and vote another one in, that sort of thing. Those churches, which is the most common model for churches today, those churches tend to, over time, uh, certain families in the church tend to be dominant and those dominant families tend to be in charge of everything. And so they, they're in, when I was growing up, they were called, certain men in the church were called church bosses. It was, it was, it was not a compliment. Uh, you know, it was a derogatory term, but talked about somebody being a church boss. And my brother's gone to heaven now, so I can say this, he doesn't care, but he was a church boss in the assembly of God that he was in up in Georgia. He was a big shot in the church. He liked to run things, you know, run the pastor around, all that stuff. I thought to myself, boy, oh boy, it's a good thing he doesn't try to come to my church. His days of bosshood would be over. But um, anyway, these dominant families tend to, to have a smothering influence on everybody else. Well, over time, there'll be a group of people in the church that'll get tired of that smothering uh, you know, dominance of certain families, and, and you can understand that. So they'll break off and go out and start another church so that they can be the dominant families. Same thing happens over again, and many churches are uh, the result of just a series of these recurrent things that have happened, you know, for 100 years, these things have been going on. And, uh, and so I was thinking about what if, what if there's a good church, you know, that's, that's God-ordained and some people, because they get mad and they get, you know, all cantankerous and, you know, they, they decide they're going to pull out and start another church. Now, listen, I've, been, I've, been, I've, I've made my, spent my life working in church and I've heard just about all of the, of the uh, justifications you can think of for starting local church. I've heard them all. I know hundreds of pastors that have started churches and I've been around long enough to know that almost in almost every instance, the reason given for starting a church is always God said. God's in it, God led us. But I've also been around long enough to know that when you, when you drill down a little bit below the surface, there are a whole lot of unholy motivations going on that have nothing to do with the will of God. Sort of like what I was just talking about. Let's say a, a church pulls out, or a group of people pull out and start a church. They're out of envy, out of, of uh, you know, hurt feelings, out of, you know, all kinds of wrong motivations. Would Jesus give them a lampstand? I mean, just, we don't know, but would you guess? Doesn't, doesn't seem like he would. If he's not, if God's not behind it, if God's not behind this group of people that decided to meet and start a church, 
See, a lot of people believe, you know, you can just, any group of Christians can get around, get, get together, st- you know, start meeting and, and they can just start a church and call it a church, it's a church. Well, was God in it or not? Sometimes it just re- formed out of rebellion. Well, would Jesus grant a lampstand? Doesn't sound like it, I mean, to me. Well, that's, that's pretty easy to theorize about at the beginning. But let's say they've got some real uh, quality, gifted people. And uh, they're meeting in a home and, and, and it starts growing. People start coming. So they move out of the house and get a rented storefront somewhere. Put a name on it. You know, rebellious church. You know, whatever. You know, first church of the hurt feelings. Uh, okay, it's the, still it's the same situation. But what about if they start growing? They, they you know, start putting together a Sunday school program and they get a youth group and, and then, and then they, they get bigger and they, they move into a bigger facility. Maybe they buy property and build. Now they're, you know, they've got a pastor and, and uh, let's say they get real legitimate, you know, and, and actually affiliate with the denomination. Now they're a de- certain, you know, belong to a denomination. They let, you know, let's say they're running 500 people or 5,000 people. At what point does Jesus capitulate and grant a lampstand to a church he had nothing to do with? I don't, I don't know. I, these are things I think about sometimes, I guess because I'm a pastor. But my point is, for a, for a church to have the blessing of God on it, God has to be in the formation of that church. It's not up for, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is of God, and it's of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. So man, God uses men, but man cannot just go out and decide to start a church. Just not the way it works. And, and so, you know, I, I've been thinking about, you know, our vision and how important it is that when God calls a group of people together uh, to start a church, there's a reason for that church. And everybody's vision is not going to be the same. Like I said, a church vision is a revelation from God. So church's ultimate purpose for existing. Why do we exist? And it is the goal or the prize towards which toward which the church labors. Everything uh, that a church does should be focused on the vision that God gave. Uh, Every department of the church, every, every aspect of every aspect from the nursery to the fellowships, every department should function to serve the vision of the church. That's one reason why we've been so strong around here is we have one church vision and everybody knows what it is and every department. I learned the hard way in the early years. We'd we'd only been together just a a few months and there was a a young, then they, you know, they were about our age and uh, we were young at the time and it was a couple and we put them in charge of the youth. And uh, to begin with, I didn't have the vision for the church. But uh, sometimes when someone starts a church, they'll have a vision right from the beginning. Uh, Other times it comes a little later. I was real slow 
in getting the vision for our church because the first few years, I didn't even want to be here. It wasn't that I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't feel called to pastor. I only, I only took the job, so to speak, to help out until the real pastor came. And, uh, and then, you know, after a while, even after I saw that I was supposed to stay and pastor the church, I honestly, I really thought I was just uh, going through a testing period, proving my faithfulness, and that at any moment, God was going to pluck me up and put me into my real ministry. I really thought that. And so because of that, I didn't, I didn't even though I was developing some, some uh, uh, pastoral traits and, and getting some insight, I really didn't see that I had a future there. And so I, I really wasn't pursuing certain things. But, so it took about six years for me to get the vision of the church. Should not take that long. That was way too long. Uh, like I said, some, some pastors will get the vision right away. Uh, once, w- w- the reason we had, a tr- we had trouble in the beginning with this couple that was helping in our youth ministry is because we had no clear vision. I would try to define what our church was about and I'd say, our church is a praise and worship church. Our church is a word of faith church. Our church is a Holy Ghost church. Our church is an outreach church. Our church is that I just, and, and depending on how I was feeling that week, I'd preach something else, you know, about what our, because it was all biblical. All those things are biblical. But there was no cohesive vision. Well, this, this couple, this young couple, uh, they were in their 30s, I guess, they, they had the youth ministry and I wasn't watching over it like I should have and they started taking the youth ministry in a completely different direction than the church was going. Even though I didn't even have a real clear vision, we were still going in a direction, bouncing around a bit, but they had, what I'm saying is they started developing an identity in their own group. In other words, this husband and wife, they began to develop a ministry identity of their own, what God had called them to do. And it really had nothing to do with the church. You know, there are a lot of people, I call them uh, wannabe ministers. Every community has them. I've been around this community a long time. I've seen them come and go. There, every community has certain people that drift through the church community. And they're, they're, a lot of times they're a charismatic kind of people. Maybe they're influential people. They're business people or they're, you know, gifted uh, in some way or another. And... Uh, to be honest with you, there's not enough anointing on their life to establish a ministry on their own. God knows they've tried. But instead, they look for a church that they can use to get in a sort of piggyback, you know, their, their so-called ministry on the back of the church. Because again, like I said, they don't really have sufficient uh, anointing on their own to start a ministry. And so they're looking for a gullible church and a weak pastor where they can come in and, and use that church to sort of stage what they want to do. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen it right in, in the greater Gainesville you know, community out here. I've seen it time and time again. And uh, that's what this couple was doing. I don't think they were really aware of what they were doing, but that's essentially what they were doing. And when I finally realized what was going on, that they were taking the church in another direction, then God used that couple to really generate some major division in the church. Because when I saw that they weren't walking with me, I took them out of that youth ministry. I said, you know what? We're going to pull the plug on this. I don't want you to do this anymore. Well, oh boy, oh boy. 
Next thing I know, they were meeting with people in the church and talking behind my back, and, and they, they were doing their best to take the, this fledgling church and, and destroy it. They were going to take it and do their thing. Well, they, they weren't called. Uh, you know, you can look at people's lives over time, and, and, and the truth bears out. You know, and I, and I, couldn't, I wouldn't want to go into it, but, you know, just crazy things have happened to them over the years. But my point is, uh, a church has to have one vision, and how, how do I, as a pastor, how do I uh, maintain the vision of our church? How do I, in other words, if you ask any department director in our church, what's the vision of your department? They'll tell you it's the vision of the church. They'll read you Acts 26, 17, 18, and 19. Well, how do I, how do, I do that? Do I do that by having meetings, you know, with my, with my uh, uh, department director pounding my fist on the table, saying it's going to be my way or the highway? No. I do that by just continually keeping the vision in front of everybody. Everybody that joins the church listens to the same CDs. They get the same message, the same church vision. And I don't preach on it all that often, but I refer to it all along so that we're all running in the right direction. Amen. Now, a vision uh, has to be based on the word of God. That's pretty obvious. It's amazing today that... uh, People, when you, when you look at people's websites, I'm just, I'm just sharing some things with you tonight, explaining some things. Uh, it seems that, that some churches, when you, when you try to find out what they're about, their mission statements or whatever they have, they tend to, this is real popular, this is kind of the norm today. People put out all of these really uh, uh, feel-good, you know, uh, uh, words and platitudes like, you know, we, we, we're about love. We're about acceptance. Our church is about building community. Do you ever read these things? They're, they're, it's real common. And you try to find out what they believe, you can't find it. There's no statement of faith. I mean, you drill down, you look through everything, and, it, and it's almost like having a clear, defined doctrine is some kind of a dirty word these days. Doctrine is, a, well, doctrine is not a, word, a dirty word. You know, and, and I think a lot of people have the idea that, you know, we want to keep ourselves in general terms, you know, so that we don't offend anybody and so that anybody can come and not feel threatened. But God raises up churches to teach people the Bible so that they'll know what to think and believe, not the other way around. But anyway, uh, uh, a church vision is real important. Uh, now, there's some wrong foundations upon which to build a church. And a lot of people build them on this. And one wrong, run, one wrong foundation is the personal charisma of the pastor. Thank God you don't have that problem. <laughs> you know, some, some people, you've met them, some people just have bigger than life personas. You've met people like that. My, my good friend that went home to be with the Lord back in, in, in uh, June, uh, George Kearns, Pastor Kearns, I mean, you talk about a bigger-than-life persona. I mean, the guy was just, he, 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 I, told, I said this at his funeral, I said, George Kearns was the kind of person that once you knew him, you always wanted your friends to meet him. I was always trying to get my pastor friends who came to town, you've got to meet George Kearns. He was just such an amazing, he was the kind of guy when he walked in the room, he just kind of sucked all the air out of the room, you know. Just everything was on was on George, and that's and that's and that's good, you know. If you're blessed with that kind of personality and that kind of charisma, that's wonderful. 
But the mistake a lot of times pastors make is they build their ministries on that. And they build the church on that. And the identity of the church is all around that pastor. The problem with that is one day should Jesus tarry, that pastor is going to be replaced. Then what's going to happen to the church is built around his personality that nobody else can match. Amen. And so when I teach, you know, on the local church, I, I teach pastors, I say, you know, if you are so blessed to have that kind of a personality, I'm not, you know, I'm just plain vanilla. But if you, if you are that kind of person that you've got this real, you know, real charm and you're real charming and you're real charismatic and people like, I said, you need to be very careful. There's an old saying uh, around, it's pretty old. I heard it about 15 years ago. I don't know how old it is, but I heard it first time about 15 years ago. And it goes like this, something like this. It says, the anointing of God can take a man to a place where his character cannot keep him. How many times have you heard of, of ministers powerfully anointed of God, powerfully used of God, tremendous anointing in their life, and it took them to a, a place of such elevation, everybody knew, worldwide known, or, or nationally known, and then something happens in their life and it all comes crashing down. It was a character issue. And the first time I heard that was uh, Randy Greer said it in an RMAI meeting uh, in uh, uh, South uh, East Florida a number of years ago that I was conducting. I had him be the speaker. He made that statement. He said, the anointing of God can take you, can take a man to a place where his character cannot keep him. And so his point was you've got to develop your character along with the anointing. If that's true about the anointing, how much more true is that about personality? A person's personality and 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 charisma or whatever you want it can, can take you to a place where your character can't keep you. And so I always advise pastors, you know, be careful to develop your character. In fact, I've got a, a Bible school uh, series of lessons that I do called the minister's consciousness. It's called the minister's consciousness. And it's all about, and it, it's just, it really isn't so much a teaching as much as it is a reading and kind of a charge from uh, scores of scriptures have to do with a person's character and a minister's character and what they're called to do and how they ought to live and that sort of thing. And, and that's the, that has to be the foundation. And I tell pastors, you know, if, you are, if you're one of those persons that everybody just loves and they just think you're the, the, the greatest thing since, you know, Swiss cheese, you need to be very, very careful lest you start believing all the good things people say about you. Because that's about one of the worst things you can do is start believing all the good things. When I get cards, like at Pastor Appreciation, Pastor Appreciation saying, I read some of the things you write and I go, oh, glory to God. Well, I'll agree with them <laughs> by faith, you know, because uh, I see my frailties. I see my humanity. I see my, my, my uh, uh, inadequacies in the areas where I don't measure up. And that's, I'm not talking about being, uh, you know, uh, having a negative view of myself or anything like that. But I'm talking about being realistic and realizing if there is any good that anybody's ever done, it's on God. It's not on me or anybody else. And so, you know, that's, that's important. So many people build their churches on, you know, the, the pastor. They build their churches on good works to the community. Now, a lot of churches, are, that's, that's their big thing is good works to the community. You know, they've got every kind of outreach you could imagine. They've got outreach to this people and outreach to that people. That, you know, they've got all these programs going. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 
you know, the, the world has its own ideas of the purpose of the church, the local church. It's interesting that the world doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ, and yet they, they believe they know what the church is supposed to be here, what its purpose is in the community. They don't have a clue. And so a lot of churches believe they're supposed to be here, you know, to advance the social gospel, you know, of giving to the poor and helping these people and helping those. Jesus never said, go into all the world and adopt a highway. But to, to see some churches, you'd think that's what he said. Israel, Israel, these are little sound bites from my book, but Israel, Israel did not have a Meals on Wheels program to the Philistines. They didn't. In the, in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about the church giving to the poor, you read it, do background study on it, read the context. The church took up offerings to give to the poor in the church. Not to the unbelieving Romans. They did not have an outreach to the Romans. They did not have an outreach to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the unbelievers. When the, when the churches took up offerings, it was sent by the apostles to minister to the saints in Jerusalem. Read it. And there are so many churches, they've got these outreaches. And I think, un, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think a lot of churches have fallen into the trap of trying to justify their existence in the eyes of the world. You know, we're, we're a valued member of this community because look at all the good we do and looking for the world's approval. And like I said, sort of to justify their existing so that the world will say, well, yeah, we, that church is a, is a contributing member of the, of the community. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is about redemption, it's about people being saved from their sins. It's about the blood of Jesus that was shed to redeem the sinner from his sins, from his sickness, from his, from his poverty and lack. In other words, that's what the gospel is. It's about people getting right with God, forsaking sin, turning from darkness, turning to light, and, and being born again and living in a way that glorifies God. It isn't about these other things. I, I, I know this one... Uh, pastor and his, his family, his dad pastored the church for he did. And I've known him and, and this man for a number of years in RMAI. We were at a meeting a couple years ago down in uh, uh, central Florida. And it was one of these idea exchange type things. And people were talking about, you know, somebody, the, the moderator of the, of the uh, RMAI meeting. I used to do those things when I was the director, but I'm not the director anymore. So I was there and so the director was asking people, you know, the pastors there, what do you do? What kind of things you do, you know? And this, this pastor talked about the fact that every year at school, just before the beginning of school, they have a backpack, you know, giveaway where they buy several hundred little backpacks and they stuff them with pencils and crayons and paper and, you know, church, you know school supplies. And then they put it in the new, newspaper and they announce, you know, the community that they're giving away these backpacks. And uh, so people come to the church, have to get a ticket, have to, you know, get their ticket, and then they have to go in the auditorium and, and watch a 15-minute, you know, video presentation of the gospel. Then they go and they get a little snack and they get their backpack. And uh, he was talking about what a great idea that was. They've been doing it for several years now. And uh, my son, you know, Greg, he's, he's a little mischievous, you know, and he said, well, well, how many people would you say you've added to your church? 
as a result of the backpack. This, this fellow, he kind of surprised me. He kind of blushed. He said, well, well, it's, it's really not about adding people to the church. It's, it's about being a blessing to the community. I thought, really? Really? You mean you really did not expect to get people in your church? He went on to say that one year they way underestimated how many backpacks they needed, like by a hundred or something. And when the people got there, they had this huge turnout, much bigger than they, than they expected. When the people got there and they ran out of backpacks, they almost had a full-blown riot on their hands. People were mad. They were cussing. You know, I've stood in line. I want my backpack. It's obvious that these people were not coming for any reason other than to, 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 to take advantage of the church and get something free. And, and I think that's the point at which, which Pastor Greg asked the question, you know, and, and I think this fellow realized he'd kind of exposed himself and he said, well, we, we really do it, you know, to get people in our church. Well, why are you doing it? I mean, if that's not one of your objectives, everybody wants to build their church. But what I'm saying is churches can get lost in all of these things. Now, see, I believe in giving to the poor, and I do. And I teach you what I do. What, what a lot of people do in their churches, they have these giving programs, you know, and they'll, maybe there's a big race in town, and so they, they got their church, and they've all got their T-shirts on. They're out there along the uh, race uh, route, you know, and they're giving out water bottles to all the racers, you know, and they got their church name on it, Outreach to the Community. Well, you know, that's all fine if you like to do that sort of stuff, but you're never going to win people to Christ doing that. And uh, uh, people, people have the idea that if they do a lot of these things, again, people will like them and will start coming to the church. But if people come to the church because of what you give them that's not Christ, what, what is the purpose? What is the point? Uh, like I said, I believe in giving to the poor, but the way I give to the poor and this way I teach you is I'm led by the Holy Spirit. See, when, you, when a church has an indiscriminate, we're going we're gonna to feed 500 families for Thanksgiving. Woo-hoo, everybody heard, anybody heard that before? We're going to feed 500 families for Thanksgiving. The problem is you can't discern. You can't pick one family out and say, no, you move along, you don't qualify. Yeah, we'll give, you can't do that. Whoever shows up, you've got to give them. The and there are people there that have no intention of serving God. They're not, they're not impressed with your church. It's not a witness to them. They live ungodly lives. They just want the turkey. There's no way you can discern. Uh, there's no discernment in that. Where I tell people, be led of the Holy Ghost and do like, uh, uh, what's her name, Paula? <laughs> Sister, what's her Paula? Sister Paula. Be led of the Holy Ghost. See, I keep, a, you know, several hundred dollars with me all the time. I just keep, I don't need it, I just keep it. So that if the Lord leads me to give something to somebody, don't come up to me after church, but I'm just saying, if, if, the, Lord, if the Lord leads me to give something to somebody, I've got it. And, but, but having said that, I don't walk through the mall, just kind of looking around seeing who I can give to. That's a good way to go through some money fast. I, I just have money and I, and I tell the Lord regularly, you know, I look at my money clip and I say, no, Lord, this is yours. Whatever you want me to do with it, you know, if there's somebody I can help, I want to help. I, I want to. It's not that I'm willing, I want to. Not just willing, I want to. But you speak to me, you impress me. 
And sometimes I'll go for weeks, you know, and I'm, I'm around people. I know they have needs, but I don't, I don't get any particular witness. I don't give them anything. And, and when I do give people money, it's not always people that you would necessarily think are poor. Sometimes they are, like this man. I've been in restaurants. I've just gone up to people and given them money, just sitting on the table and just here, the Lord said me to bless you, said for me to bless you with that. God bless you, trying to walk off. You know, don't even give them a chance to respond. But sometimes the Lord will have me lead, will lead me to give to somebody that's not even poor. Maybe it's a Christian and they've got a need in their life. Maybe they're believing God for something. And I don't know anything about it. I'm, I'm not given because I think they have a need. I'm just given because I feel impressed. See, that's a much better way to give to the poor. Let your life be one where you are available to give. You don't have to start out with hundreds of dollars. Just put a 20 or two tens in your wallet. Keep it there. You know, and then when the Lord, and keep it where it's not for you. It's not part of your budget. Where, you know, God can use you just to, you know, to, to bless somebody. A lot of people, they feel good about their church because we're feeding the hungry. We're, you know, we're giving turkeys at Thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's real interesting how generous people are with other people's money. AKA the church's money. Now, sure, they gave their tithes to the church, but they don't have to give anything extra. So it didn't really cost them anything. So when the church is given, you know, 500 turkeys out, they feel like, oh man, we're doing something for, well, yeah, but what have you done? How much money have you come off of that's over and above the normal? See, people have ways of conning themselves into, into believing that, they've, that they're special, you know. Well, amen. This is a little different. It's just things I haven't ever taught before, but I mean, not here. Uh, well, praise the Lord. I don't want to go into more of that. Heavenly vision. A heavenly vision. Now, some things are common. When, you, when I say every church should have its own vision and, and a church should be raised up to meet a particular purpose or to pursue a particular purpose of God and that every church, every church should be unique. Having said that, you do understand that there are some things that will be common to all churches. Every church is ordained to preach the whole Bible. You know, preach salvation and, and, and uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And even though a lot of them don't, they're supposed to. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, healing, you know. There are some things that are common to all churches that, that everyone should, should be ministering. But then there are some things that, that are special. If you think about it, remember Paul and Peter, the difference in their ministry? God raised up Peter, even though the Lord sent him to Cornelius' house early on to present the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, it was Paul. Remember, look, at the, look in uh, the book of Acts. It was uh, in the first church council, Acts chapter 15. Remember when... Uh, the Judaizers were running around telling the, the uh, uh, Gentiles that had gotten saved in Antioch and those places that they were going to have to be circumcised, keep the law and all of that. There was a big discussion, you know, and Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles about this. You remember that? The 15th chapter of, uh, of uh, uh, Acts. And so they had this big uh, discussion and Peter got up and said, no, you know, we shouldn't lay upon the Gentiles, put a yoke around their neck that none of the rest of us were able to, to, uh, to handle. And uh, so they sent, Peter, they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch 
and told them to go to the Gentiles and, and don't lay the, the obligations of the law upon them. Just preach the grace of God. Now, I said Acts, and I realize now it's in Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 or 2. I'll find it. It's in there somewhere. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. I read it. Verse number six, chapter two, verse six, from those who seem to be something. Paul's talking about the brethren in Jerusalem, the apostles and the leaders of the church there. From those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. He was a warm fellow. God shows personal favoritism. I can't even say that. Favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or to the Jews. So you see here that Peter and, and, and Paul preached the same gospel. They preached the same way of salvation. It's, by, it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're, that we're saved. They preached the basics. They still were sent to different people and God would tailor their message and their delivery and how they presented it to their audience. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Every church has a calling, if it's of God, God will give a church a, a vision, and this is, a, this is especially what that church is supposed to be doing. And again, we compliment the other churches because we, we agree on 99% of things, but it's that, it's that extra part that God gives each church, and, he, and that's, the, that's where the church's strength is. I think it was, uh, we'll close with this, I think it was... Uh, Charles Capps, I believe it was Charles Capps when I was in Bible school, he made another statement that was really, that really stuck with me. He said, movements, talking about religious movements, you know, movements in the church like the charismatic movement or whatever, you know, Pentecostal movement. He said, movements in the church die because over time they get away from their original call and purpose and they start gathering in all of these other things that other groups and other churches are doing and it waters down their anointing and what God called them to do, they're not even pursuing anymore. They're just like everybody else. He said, that's when movements die. And I thought to myself, and that's when churches die. And that's why this church isn't gonna die. Amen. It'll be here when Jesus comes back uh, and, and, and it's because we're going to stay with the vision God gave us. It's what, it's, it's, it's where that, ca- that candlestick is based on the church doing what God called it to do. Now I know in, in the book of, of, uh, uh Revelation there where Jesus told the church at Ephesus, repent, do the first works, you know, and he said, I have this, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. I know that most people interpret that their first love is Jesus. And, and I wouldn't want to argue, but you know, a lot of times there's more than one meaning in a scripture and more than one application. I wouldn't deny that that's talking about your first love is Jesus. I've preached that, I'll continue to preach that. 
But I don't know that that's all of it. Because the church at Ephesus, if you read the things they were doing wrong, if you read the things they were doing good, they were still pursuing the things of God. It could very well be that leaving your first love is leaving that first calling that God gave you as a church. And that just might be the thing that causes a church to lose its candlestick. And that's what Caps was talking about when he said movements die when they get away from what God called them to do in the beginning. Start pursuing everything else. Well, praise the Lord. Just some insights. Amen. Glory to God. God is good, isn't he? At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.